Jesse, and uh, <laughs> if, if, you haven't introduced, if you haven't met him yet, this is Jesse, and the, I'm Jesse as well. And, uh, the Jesse Show. He, yeah. He's here because we've had some complaints about there being too many Brads in the church. <laughs> and uh, so we thought it would be good to get another Jesse. But I, um, I wanted to share with you a little bit uh, sto- uh, the story uh, for Jesse so you can understand why he's here with us. Um, uh, he is really good friends with Zach and Laura Osnes, who are over here. You just met Laura a minute ago. She's been, she teaches the women's study on Tuesday. Uh, and both of them are graduates of uh, Talbot, as well as Brad Beers, who's also a graduate uh, of Talbot. And so is Jesse. So mm-hmm. um, they, they have known each other for... Eight years or... Eight yeah, years, I don't know. yeah. Nine so, years, yeah. Um, I met them because of just the mutual friendship. And um, he has been a worship pastor in the Bay Area for the last four years and has left that position at his church to plant a church in the Bay Area. And uh, he joined us at our Christian Missionary Alliance, um, which we're a part of um, retreat or uh, conference that we did, uh, and uh, just heard his heart and and wanted to be able to somehow you know support him and love on him because church planning is no joke. And so I wanted to introduce him to you guys because I know some of you are in the Bay Area and we have church family that are in the Bay Area that if you're looking um, for someone to partner with or or to help out or if you're just a church planting kind of person and you really appreciate what people. Uh, do in that regard because it is again it's a very difficult thing i wanted to introduce you to him and then bless you guys with his music and so this is jesse yeah <laughs> they make them in and tall as well supposedly and I'll, I'll just show you guys laugh way too much at the short jokes that um, I'm moving a little slower today. I, I had a birthday yesterday. I'm 40 years old now, so yeah, congratulations for not dying. Um, and uh, you no longer can just call me kid. I kind of feel that way, uh, you, which was the case years ago. You know, I started ministry at Sear Bible when I was 26, and so uh, to be here that long and to think that several of you are still here is quite a miracle of God's grace, so. Uh, we're starting a new um, book this morning, and so while I just mentioned a couple other things, if you turn to the book of James, we're going to be in the book of James this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers would gladly uh, give you a Bible. You just passed by one. Um, and if you're borrowing one of our Bibles, page 1011 uh, would be the page that the book of James is on. Um, <clears throat> we support Travis and Amber. We've said a lot about them. Uh, so ministry serving orphans and widows in Mexico, and they're having a fundraiser on the 29th of September in Roseville, uh, and called a Night of Purpose, which is basically it's just a fundraiser. It's a um, uh, what's it called when you auction items off silent silent auction. Thank you. They're doing silent auction, all kinds of opportunities to win some really good stuff for a lot cheaper than it's worth. Um, but if you want to go to Roseville and and support Travis, say hi to him. Uh, we have some tickets that will be for sale um, in the info booth. Larry, what's the char- uh, price of those tickets? They're $40 a piece. All of that goes towards them and taking care of uh, the orphans and kids that they take care of in Mexico, as well as uh, building towards the property that they're purchasing down there and trying to uh, build an orphanage on. So please take advantage of that. And then um, Brad Beers, Talbot graduate, he's going to be heading up our uh, Prothumia, which starts next Sunday uh, night at 5.30 p.m. That's the, that's the time, right? Um, and uh, it's going to be on spiritual disciplines, 
which is going to really piggyback really well with where we're at in James for the next couple months. And so um, it'll be a real cohesive kind of time. So if you want to go to that, uh, please come next week. Uh, we're, we do that in the evenings, like I said, on Sundays. And this is six weeks, I think, yeah? Six weeks for this particular block because uh, we do blocks for them. So come join us next week uh, and hear Brad teach and then Wayne's uh, doing, doing some of the teaching there as well. With that said, um, if you are uh, visiting this morning, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. We have a tradition um, where we stand during the reading of God's Word. We value God's Word. We honor God's Word. And so if you would please stand with me if you're able to this morning as we read just a few verses from James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, we come before you this morning, knowing that for many of us, we're entering into a new season. The cool of the morning, Lord, and fall reminds us that... uh, Lord, seasons do change. School is starting up for many, new programs, new sports, soccer, football, all of the things that were entailed in fall, Lord, remind us as well that winter is coming. Seasons, Lord, teach us that your mercies are truly new every morning, that you bring a fresh day and a new season in life. I pray for us as a church as we enter into this next season, That it would be a season for us, Lord, where we are reminded that it is your word that molds us and shapes us into your image. It is the the thing we go to to hear from you, to be ministered to by you, to be molded and shaped in your image. And we just trust you for the work you're going to do this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. may be seated. So, uh, as someone asked me the other week, just last week. We're done with the fish, right? And we spent, uh, I actually, it may maybe seemed longer than it really was, but we had 10 messages in total in the book of Jonah. For us as a church, I think the book of Jonah was uh, an important time for us. It ministered to many of you. It challenged many of you. And for the next couple months, we'll be in the book of James, five chapters. And this is not to be mistaken with the book of Jonah. James is unique. It is very different. In fact, it is going to be, I think for us in many ways, a very difficult book. I heard one pastor say this week, he likened it to a glorious punch in the gut. I don't think anybody this morning really came walking through the door saying, could you give me a good wallop in the gut, sir? I'd be thankful for it. Nonetheless, it is a book that is going to challenge us. There are really, I think, not to be over uh, simplistic, but sometimes it's, it's good for us to simplify and show the different themes in Scripture and help us understand what's happening in Scripture. There's really, there's really two um, chunks that you could tie Scripture into, two, two big themes. Theme one, which was a lot of Jonah. Uh, the Bible covers how to get to God or how God gets to us. That's kind of the first theme. How does God save a person? And Jonah, we shared that Jonah was 
really an overarching theme to the entire Bible. We run and God chases us down. There is no running from God. If God desires to save you, he will save you. If he desires to forgive you, he will forgive you. He will intervene in your life as he intervened in Moses' life, in Jacob's life, in Abraham's life, in Saul's life, in Peter's life, in Matthew's life. You'll take note of when Jesus approaches Matthew, the tax collector. He just simply says to Matthew, you follow me. And he picks up and he leaves. Much of the Bible covers this reality of how one gets to God. By grace first, grace is always first, and then the gift of faith is given. And then we respond, grace and faith alone. The second chunk of Scripture, though, covers something entirely different, how to walk with God. Once God has intervened in your life and God has saved you, much of Scripture now teaches us what it looks like to walk with God, to grow up in God to know what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. This is the book of James. It's part of what's called the wisdom literature. James will pull much from his knowledge of Proverbs. He will pull from his knowledge also, you'll see throughout this, he, he quotes many times the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus mentions blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor in spirit and all of those different things that we look at and are challenging of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. This book is considered one of the general epistles, speaking also of 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 3rd John, Jude, just a work of letters written by an apostle. This particular book is one of the earliest New Testament writings we have in canon, and he's writing specifically to the Jews of the dispersion, those Jews who've been pushed out of Israel through persecution and famine. Some believe that the pushing out for these Jews was also because of the martyrdom of Stephen in the book of Acts. These are Christians that he's writing to, Jewish Christians, that are struggling. They have gone through some stuff, the persecution and the famine and just the heaviness of it all. James, however, teaches us something unique than any other book in the Bible. What do I mean? What I mean is oftentimes when you come across Scripture, you'll find a lot of what it has to say again about that first chunk, how to get to God. How does one get into a relationship with God? In James, we will not see any mention of the death of Jesus Christ. We'll see no mention of his resurrection. In fact, there won't be a whole lot of mentioning of grace at all, which some have, as many pastors in the past, even those in the 1500s and the the Reformation actually struggled with James to the point of saying, we need to take it out of the Bible. This is too difficult. Where's the grace? Where, where's, the, where's the part where, where we don't earn our salvation? Because so much of it is going to entail works, doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. You know how popular that is in our culture, right? So with this said, this is going to be a book that is challenging for us as a church. We'll get into this a little bit more, but this isn't going to be just a, you know, a very easy, you know, dessert kind of, kind of meal, you know. This isn't, this isn't cheesecake. This is, this is going to be heavy. What does it look like to walk with God now that I have been saved? Do you know who James is? All right, we've got some theologians in the room. Now, let's be clear, he's not just the brother of Jesus, he's the half-brother of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but they have different fathers, okay? We're, we're clear on that. 
Now, this is actually somewhat not traditional for the Catholic Church or some other sects of Christianity that actually believe that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she had never known any kind of intimacy. However, this isn't taught in Scripture. Prior to uh, the marriage of Mary and Joseph, she became pregnant miraculously through a virgin birth. Jesus was then conceived within her womb through God the Father, and our Messiah was born through Mary. And then later, Mary and Joseph did what married people do. (laughs) How do we know this? Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says this. Is this not the carpenter, common carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, Jesus had a brother. Now, I don't know if uh, any of you have ever had any siblings. Anybody? Anybody? Has anyone had a sibling that had a little bit of a Messiah complex? (laughs) A couple of you? Now, this is important to note because James grew up with Jesus. James knew Jesus on an intimate level that no one else knew. And we're told in John chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed. This is important because we're going to talk a lot about working out our faith. One of the key themes in the book of James is faith without works is dead. Faith with no works is dead. You really have not met Jesus Christ. But it's important for us to understand as a backdrop as we enter into this book, the radical nature of grace that James experienced. This was a man who grew up with Jesus who denied that Jesus was the Messiah. I think this doesn't seem like too much of something to wrestle with. If your brother told you that he was the Messiah, your first response would be, (laughs) no. (laughs) Yet this is how he grew up. Imagine what it would have been like for James. For James to grow up in a home where his brother was perfect all the time. Imagine what it would have been like when his parents were one day looking, gee, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And where was he? He was in the temple. And when his parents finally find him and they say, Jesus, what are you doing in the temple? And he says, I, you should know I'm in my father's house doing the work of my father. Meanwhile, where's James? Playing Fortnite or something. <laughs> Not walking with God. But something happened in James' life. The resurrection happened. Upon the resurrection, James finally believes. How do we know this? 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Speaking of when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, upon being resurrected from the dead, he then appears to James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He appears to James first and then to all of the apostles. Jesus has a one-on-one with his little brother. You didn't believe. You didn't know. It's okay, I'm here. I am the Messiah. What's amazing about this is, first of all, just think of the conversation. Think of the reality of what it meant for James. James, in this point, was literally, he was literally the prodigal brother. Not believing in his brother as the Messiah and now coming to a place of belief. Tim Keller says, here's what Jesus is trying to say about the prodigal son. Jesus is saying, I am the true older brother. 
There is no way for you, and this is true of us as well, my friends, to come back into the family after having rejected the father, except at my expense. But I am the true elder brother. I go out into the wilderness and I find the lost boy. I put him on my shoulders and I bring him back and I set him down and say, there's no way for you to get back into this family except at my expense. And I give it all gladly. My robe, my ring, my body, my blood, it's yours gladly. That is what he said to his real little brother. He says, little brother, James, the only way for you to come back is at my expense. But I come for you. My body, my blood, my robe, my ring, it's all of grace, but I give it gladly. Now be a leader in my church. See, James understood grace. So as we enter into this book, we have to understand the background in which James is coming from a place of unbelief to a place of radical belief to a place of leadership within the early church. We're told of James, as far as him being a, a, a leader in the early church, that before Peter really stepped up to his game, James was the one who led the church. He was in Acts chapter 1 in the room praying when the Holy Spirit came. In Acts chapter 15, there became an issue between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews essentially were saying, yes, we believe in Jesus, but in order to be saved, you have to embrace Judaism. So though you may be a Gentile, someone who is not a Jew, you can come to Christ, but then you must be circumcised, which I'm sure was a very popular thing. In that moment, James eloquently shows the church that this is not true of salvation. James's own words in Acts 15 teach us that faith is a gift of God's grace and that no one can earn their salvation, especially by becoming a Jew, that that is not necessary to do anything to your body or to practice the, the religion of Judaism to be saved. This is why in Galatians 2.9, James is literally called a pillar of the early church. Can I just take for a moment, just share with you the radical nature in which James has been saved? A place of unbelief, even though he saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, to a place of belief, to a place of leadership. I long to see more people within our church and our community to go through that exact process. A place of not believing, to a place of radical belief, to a place of leadership in the church. Those that we don't expect to follow God, those that we don't deem important enough to follow Christ. And in fact, I was sharing with someone just the other day, many years ago, and I was 21 years old, I stood before this church to go to the school of evangelism. Needed 1,500 bucks just to go through the school. Wayne brought myself up and two other guys. Travis was one of them, who we now support in Mexico, and another gentleman by the name of Mike Avila. And we stood up here, 21-year-old, just young, broken, stupid young men. That's what we were. And I was desperate, desperate to get my life right with God, desperate to come to a place where, where I was at peace with my maker. I was tired of being depressed. I was tired of being anxious. I was just tired of it, and I was ready to just leave everything in Truckee behind and just suffer in San Diego. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> Upon asking the church for money at, the t at that time, there was an older gentleman in the church who brought me off to the side, sat me down, and said this. My wife and I were considering giving to you, but I just need you to know we don't think you're worth the investment. 
in all honesty, he was right. <laughs> in many ways, in every worldly aspect, he was right. But don't we long for the individual? Don't we long to see the person that's not worth being invested in, to, to invest in them, to see something in them? And then God grabs them and does something radical, and they become something you never would expect. And then you look back and you go, well, how'd that happen? I've had, I've had other pastors ask me that. How'd that happen? And I, I almost go, grace, bro. Really? But we get so accustomed into the church that, that we need some kind of gimmick program or, or some kind of weird little, little Bible study or something to get people to really buy in. And then, and then when we see the drug addict or the alcoholic or, or the person who has been an adulterer all of his life or a fornicator all of his life, and all of a sudden they become Christians and then they become leaders in the church and we go, oh, wow, that's crazy. My friends, more times than not, especially in Scripture, that's the norm. James became a leader. Why? Because of God's grace. James is going to challenge us to work out our faith. Why? Because he's been a radical, he's been radically impacted by God's grace. The person who's been radically impacted by God's grace will have no, no other option but then to work out that faith, to be a doer of God's word and not just a hearer. My friends, this is going to be challenging this morning as well as over the next couple months as we dig into this book. This is a book of wisdom, just like Proverbs, filled with truisms. You know what a truism is? It means if you do it, it's more likely to happen. Something's more likely to happen if you don't do it. An example of that in Scripture, it says, parents train up a child in the way they should go, and they will not depart from it. That's a truism. It's not always true. Some of you as parents, you've done exactly that. Maybe you've had multiple kids. One, it worked for them, and one, it didn't. It's a truism. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a promise, but it's wise living. One pastor says it like this, James with its devotion to direct, pungent statements on wise living, is reminiscent of the book of Proverbs. It has a practical emphasis, stressing not theoretical knowledge, but godly behavior. James wrote with a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the word of God. James, if you will, is a manual of sorts on Christian living. Or as Keller puts it in regards to wisdom literature, it means we're not so much trying to define the gospel, especially in regards to the book of James, <clears throat> to trying to define the essential principles of the Christian faith, but rather we're seeing how they flesh out, how they work out, practical godliness, how they affect the way in which we live. That's the reason James, in some ways, is a unique book in the New Testament, because it takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, how shall we then live? The question for us as we dive into this is going to be, if you have truly been impacted by God's grace, are you living in such a way that really shows that grace is real to you? Now, just to give you an understanding a little bit more of the life of James and how much James was just impacted by his big brother's perfect life, this is how James died. There's several theories. I'm only going to touch upon the one I have here this morning. 
And this is what is said of James in 62 AD. The enemies of the gospel came to James and said, there's too many people becoming Christians. Make it stop. Tell the people to turn from Jesus. And we're told James looked out and called down and said, why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He dwells in heaven at the right hand of the mighty power. He will come in clouds of heaven. And in anger, they threw him off. He fell to the ground, but he wasn't dead yet. Beaten and broken, he twisted to his knees, and he began to pray for forgiveness of his enemies. At that point, they came down and stoned him, beat him over the head with a fuller's bat until he was dead. This is the one, by the way, who it says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Do you know what various includes? Well, yeah, all of them. Young teenager gets up in the morning to head to their prom, and they find a zit on their nose. It's a various kind of trial, but a trial nonetheless. James was willing, because of the grace of God, he was willing to die for and to suffer for who Jesus Christ was. There's a popular statement going around. Maybe you've heard it. Believe in something, even if it costs you everything. The world has taken something like what James has gone through. It has made it trite. It has made it small. As if sacrificing millions of dollars in your reputation is somehow sacrificing everything. My friends, as Christians, when was the last time you were really mocked for your faith? How many of you in this room have ever suffered in prison because you preached the gospel too radically? How many of you have ever been beaten to the point of being left for dead because you preached the love of Jesus Christ? The American church knows absolutely nothing of the kind of suffering that the first century church deals with. The, the church across, across the globe knows much more of its suffering. They, the, the, the reality for you and I this morning is we don't really know what it means to sacrifice because we've been given everything in the United States of America. We have freedom beyond freedom. And thank God for it, but I don't think that that has strengthened the church in any way. How do you know you really believe until somebody finally gets up into your face and says, you say that again, and I'm going to kill you for it. You mean if I proclaim that Jesus is the one and only true God, you'll kill me? It's so far from our minds that I can't even, I can't even just glaze over it enough or go deep enough to, to really get us to understand what it really would have been like for James to preach the way he preached and the kind of love he had for his bigger brother. We know nothing of that kind of suffering, do we? I mean, let's be honest. We have a bad day at work. We get a flat tire. We get a cold. We get five feet of snow in one night. I'm suffering. We know nothing of the kind of suffering that so many of our brothers and sisters across the world know. But because of this radical belief in Jesus Christ, James then comes out and says, you've got to work this thing out. If you really believe in God, then it should show. Your work should show. Your life should show. Faith produces genuine works. So here's kind of the expectation for the next couple months. You're going to love it. Number one, there will be a testing of the genuineness of your real faith, of your faith. There will be a testing You'll be tested. You'll be asked the question, do you really believe what you say you believe? 
2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, as well as other places in Scripture, teach this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. There's an encouragement by James to examine our life, an encouragement in Scripture to examine our life. If you really know Jesus, your daily life and your works will show that to be true. Number two, we will be challenged not only in the testing of our faith, but we will be challenged in working out our faith as it is the purpose in which Christ has redeemed us. Let me say that again. Jesus saved you so you would do good works. If you don't believe me, let me read some scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Titus 2.11, for grace... Notice how it's grace first and then works. For great, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, that sounds a lot like work, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, that is, all that is bad works, to redeem us from bad works and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here's the question. Are you zealous for good works? The question for you and I is, are you zealous for good works? Many of you know, I go to the gym several times a week. Inevitably, there are two, <laughs> well, I'm simplifying. There are two people in the gym. Those who work out and those who, I don't know why you're here. Right? There are people, literally, it looks like they're going to the gym just to escape from some kind of reality. They're not really doing anything. They're not, wor they're not working out. If you've seen these kind of people in the gym, they just walk in circles. They look at the equipment. And they're too a little timid, maybe, to use the equipment because they've never seen it before. I saw one guy using a squat machine the other day in a way that you don't use it like that. <laughs> Felt really bad for him. Like he's going to break his back. What kind of person do you want to be? The person who's just walking around the gym or you're working out your salvation, you're, you're getting stronger in your faith and you're growing. And here's the reality. The reality is your good works and doing good works and being zealous for good works is, is not just because God wants you to do stuff for him, that he just wants to use you. No, my friends, you were created for a purpose. If, you, if you're here this morning and you're checking out why, why do people believe in God and you're wondering what is the purpose of life, why, why would somebody want to be in a relationship with God, we would firstly say to a, to a, to a great degree that, that God desires you to be happy, that God actually cares about your happiness. Now, some churches take that doctrine and teaching, and they go way too far with it, and it's all about prosperity, and it's all about feeling good. That isn't that reality of Christian faith. James just said it. You're going to encounter various trials, and you should smile about it. The reason that, that, that this is so important is because living for God and doing good works is going to be hinged to your happiness and your joy. It's what you were created for. 
So when somebody says, I'm depressed and I'm anxious, one of the questions I normally will ask at first is, well, what are you doing that's not for yourself? We live in a selfie culture. Look at me, look at what I'm doing, look at my vacations, look at my clothes, look at how pretty I am. It's all about self. Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, the internet, it is just there so you can dish out how great you are when reality is you know you're not that great, you know life isn't that great, you become more depressed with the more posts that you put on there, and you get more depressed with the more posts you see of everybody else because they're better looking and their vacation's more awesome, and oh man, and yet we still just, (laughs) am I right? And some of you, like I said something to the other guy, he goes, I'm not on social media. There's two of us, right? (laughs) And so the question I will ask is, what are you doing for somebody else? Are you just serving? Or are you just consumed with your own comfort and your own happiness? Come on, friends, let's be honest. Everything about the American culture is to help you feel better about yourself and for you to do things that, that detract you and distract you from actually dealing with reality. Why just go on a run and listen to the birds chirp when you can listen to music? Why, why would I want to deal with how sad I am when I can just binge on Netflix or Hulu? Why would I actually have to deal with my emotions and what I'm feeling in my gut? I mean, sitting down and reading, you know, it's really hard. You know why it's hard? Because you have trained yourself to be habitually distracted. And so we know nothing of hard work. Because we just love to be spoon-fed. I mean, I could ask the question, how many of you actually cook? Or how many of you just go out to eat all the time? So there's this working out. This is the reason that God has created us. It's, our joy is going to be hinged by working out our faith. You have to understand, my friends, that within this book, what James is teaching us is growth as a Christian because this is a book about growing as a Christian. It's about not being stagnant. Growth as a Christian is the expectation, not the exception. When you see somebody radically grow in your faith, you and I should never go, that's amazing. We should say, that's normal. When someone doesn't grow in their faith, that's when we should say, what is going on? It's the ex- expectation to be growing. Now, now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rough with you, but it's because it's James, and if it hurts, it's because it's good for you. There are those who first come to Jesus Christ, and we call them born-again Christians. And the Bible teaches in such a way that they are children, right? They're babies. They're infants. And there's language all throughout the New Testament about this. In fact, 1 John teaches that, it teaches that you're a child. There's children in the church. There's young men in the church. And there's also fathers in the church. And I'm thankful that we have a very diverse church. We have young children. We have young men, and we have fathers in the church. And the reality is, is a church, in order for it to be truly healthy and a true image of God, needs every single one of them. If you're old, whatever you want to define that as, you are needed in God's kingdom. 
If you're young, you're needed in God's kingdom. Every church needs a a 20-something-year-old young man who's just flying off the handle to go share the gospel in some kind of weird, rough way. (laughs) Most churches hire them as their youth pastors. (laughs) We need the energy of young men. We need the vibrant cry of a young, new infant born in Christ, and we need fathers, and and all of you are valued, all of you are needed. However, Spurgeon teaches that you cannot equate spiritual growth with physical growth. Some of you think because you're older that you're more wise, and some of you think because you're younger that you're less wise. I'm going to read to you a quote. I'm going to put it up. It's going to be hard to read because it's a lot. It's from Charles Spurgeon. I'm just going to encourage you to buckle your seatbelt right now and just enjoy the ride, okay? Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, says this. In the church of God, there are children who are 70 years old. Yes, little children displaying all the infirmities of declining years. It is not a pleasant sight to see gray-headed babies. Yet I must confess, I have seen such. And I have even been glad that I could dare to go to the length of hoping that they were babies in Christ. One would not like to say of a man of 80 that he had scarcely cut his wisdom teeth, and yet there are such, scarcely out of the nurse's arms at 60 years of age. On the other hand, there are fathers in the church of God, wise, stable, instructed, who are comparatively young men. The Lord can cause his people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. David as a lad was more of a father in God than Eli in his old age. Growth and grace is not, on a, is not a time growth. In eternal matters, years count for little. The Lord gives subtly to the simple and to the young men knowledge and discretion. Solomon was wise while yet young and in some respects wiser than when he was old. See, the reality for us as we grow in Christ is that there is an initial birth. We come to the place and acknowledgement, and there are some of you in the room where you are just coming to the understanding that God is actually good, that he doesn't want to rule over your life as as a big, brutal parent, but, but as a caring father who loves you. Some of you are coming to that understanding even now that that Jesus is gracious and he's forgiving. Some of us are still trying to understand what it really means to be completely forgiven of all of our sin, both past, present, and all of the stupid things we're going to do in the future. Some of you are a little further on. And my point in all of this is to say, it's okay if you're young in the Lord. It's great, and we want you here. But it's not okay for you to stay there. Growth is the expectation, not the exception. Who's to be growing? All y'all. All All y'all. Don't ask me where I'm getting that language from. All y'all. All y'all need to be growing. Every single one of us, old and young, no one gets out of this. We've shared it before. You don't need perfect elders and pastors. You need growing elders and pastors. And if they're not growing anymore, you need to rebuke them. And if you think that you've obtained, if you think you don't need growth, if you think you don't need to be challenged, well, now you need to be rebuked. Here's the other thing you have to understand about growth. It's a process. It takes time. It's different for some than it is others, but it also requires your cooperation. 
You have a part to play in this. It requires you submitting yourself before God and actually saying, I'm willing to grow. I'm willing to be challenged. I'm willing to be trained. I'm willing to be rebuked. One of the hardest things I've had to learn over the years as a leader is how to deal with criticism in a way that is healthy for me. Because nobody likes criticism. Right? I mean, if I came to you and I said, you're not the most patient person. I don't think you're patient. Most of us in the room would begin to immediately defend ourselves and share why we are patient. Only to find ourselves in line at McDonald's, not getting our food fast enough, and then complaining. You understand what I'm saying? I've had to learn over the years that it's okay for someone to criticize me, that my identity is not attached to someone's critical thought. That my identity is hidden within Jesus Christ. And even when somebody shares something that's not true, I can still say, okay, I thank you, I appreciate it, and then go back and wonder and ask God, how can I grow from that particular criticism? Because maybe there's just a little bit there that was true, but 98% of it wasn't. I'll still try to grow from the other 2%. One way you actually can know how mature you are in Christ is to ask the question, how well you do when somebody criticizes you. And, you, and then we, we ask the next question. It's one thing to be criticized by a boss. It's a completely another thing to be criticized by a spouse or a child. Have you ever been rebuked by your own children? <laughs> My wife and I were in a heated discussion the other day, and Peyton says, hey, you guys tell us all the time to be nice to each other. <laughs> Not the time, Peyton. Here's where it gets hard. Within the room this morning, we have people in all different stages of their growth. Some of you, as I said, you're young, and we're so thankful that you're here. You're not in a place where you're serving. You're not focusing on anyone else. You're just here because, really, there's something about the message of God's kingdom and God's grace that is appealing to you, and so you're searching and you're seeking. I want this church to be a church where we're okay with that. We're okay with someone seeking God and not knowing God and still being in the room and asking really tough questions that you don't have the answers to or I don't have the answers to quite yet. Because none of us have obtained, none of us know everything, do we? Some of you are young men, young women. You have a zealousness for the Lord, but you also have to admit you don't know what you don't know. That's wisdom, admitting you don't know. The way to wisdom is to admit you're a fool. The way to salvation is to admit that you're a sinner. That's the path. And then there's those of you that are older. And the reality in this is that along that path, you have young people who are more fervent and more, more sold out for Jesus Christ than those of you that are older. And see, we're okay with people not serving. We're okay with people, people not necessarily getting involved. We're just not okay that they continue to do that. This is not a consumeristic church. This is not a consumeristic thing that we're involved in within Christianity. This is a participation sport. If you're someone who's really been saved by grace, you will work out your salvation and you will serve. James starts out the letter. What does he say? James, a servant. The word that he's using is actually slave. James, a slave. You know why this is interesting? James was a pillar in the church. He was the half-brother of God himself. 
I don't know about you, but if I start out a letter and I want to let people know that they should listen, I don't start out with Jesse, a slave. I'd start out with, well, I'm a leader in the church. You now need to pay attention to what I write. Or if I was in James' seat, hi, my name is James, and I'm related to God. <laughs> for James, it's a higher honor to say that he's a slave of God than it is for him to mention that he has some kind of shared DNA with Jesus Christ or that he's a leader within God's church. He's a servant. Zach shared with me the other day in a conversation, he said, I've really appreciated you challenging the church in regards to, on Sundays, to come to one and serve at one. Then he said something to me that I hadn't thought of, and he said, but you know, as you grow in your faith and as you mature in Christ and you grow up, he said, it's more like come to one, come to two, serve at both. As I thought about it, it was true for me. If someone asked me the question, how how often do you just go to church? Pastor Jesse, how often do you just go to church? One, one time a year. One time a year I get to walk into a room with some anonymity. Nobody's asking for counseling. Nobody's giving me a critique. Nobody's trying to set up a session for the following week. Nobody's giving me some kind of positive critique or negative critique on the message or, or hoping we'll finally be done with Jonah and how long are we going to be in James? No, none of that. I, I don't have to, to worry about making sure it looks good in here and, and that our leaders are engaging and people are smiling, that our youth ministry is doing well and all the things that come with leading the church and, and all of that. I, one time a year, I get to walk into the church where nobody knows me, nobody says anything. I sit down with my wife. We check our kids into children's church together, say goodbye, and then come sit down and worship Jesus one time a year. And I'm not sharing with you that I'm better than you, but, but you want, here's the honest truth. If I wasn't a leader in God's church, I probably wouldn't be here every week. What? Why? What? Because I don't find it enjoyable to just sit in a room and hear somebody preaching and just to sing. That's not enjoyable to me. My friends, you can get way better preaching on the internet than you're getting right now. You, you can get way better music. I was told the first service, Jesse was good, but I've heard the, the Corey Ashbury version of he's running after us, and I, he's got you beat, bro. You're good, but you're not that good. We love you. You know what I'm saying? There's better, and, and some, of you are, some of you are like, yeah. Like, uh, there was a season here at the church where, where our music was so bad, people would listen to worship music in the car, and then they'd come in to hear Wayne preach. That's a true story. I'm not exaggerating. You, you can get better music. The, re- the, reason, the reason I find church enjoyable is because I'm a part of this. I'm participating. And, and here's the thing. Some of you, you're not there yet. Not all of you need to be pastors, but you have to understand if you're really going to get the most out of your Christian faith, you've got to start serving your Christian brothers and sisters you got to make this a participation deal. God says to us, in essence, hey, listen, man, I'm going to give you six and a half days to do whatever the heck you want. I'm going to give you 90% of your income to spend however the heck you want. Give me 10% and give me half a day where you treat me holy, where you, where you teach other people about who I am, and you disciple into one another, you love one another, you care for one another, all those one another's that Wayne wrote a book on. Do these things. 
Yeah, you got to do them through the rest of the week, but you know what? It takes energy and effort to get here, doesn't it? Don't lie to me. I know it's hard for, for us to get here sometimes. It was hard for me to get here this morning. I told you, I'm 40, man. It was rough. I'm here, though. I showed up. I wanted to call in sick, and I didn't. I'm here. It takes effort to build relationships. It's messy, and it's hard. And it's offensive and it's difficult. It will require you to forgive. It will require you to give grace. It will require you to say, I'm sorry, because that's really popular. (laughs) But that is the kingdom of God. The reality for us this morning is that all of you are in a particular place. I don't know that place. And the difficulty for me in preaching something like this is that whenever I share things like this, what ends up happening is those who are already serving way more than they should feel guilty, and then they serve more. That's not my goal. And my goal is not just to get you to do stuff so we can build some kind of little kingdom. No, it's building the kingdom of God. I shared with the first church, it's worthy to say, say it here, I believe that Jesus wants us to reach more people in our community who are not in relationship with Christ. And I believe, as foolish as it may sound, that God is going to bring us people who don't know Jesus Christ. And messages like this will prepare us to be ready for him. I want you to be a part of something great. This is more important than a paycheck. It's more important than the car you want to buy. It's more important than the house that you wish you had. It's more important than any material possession you own. This is kingdom stuff. This is eternal stuff. This is valuable. You've got 80 years if you're lucky here, 100 if you're really unlucky. And then, <laughs> and then you've got eternity. Then you have eternity. The problem with people who are young in the faith and young children, all they're thinking about is right now. Instead of thinking about what we're investing in. So, so here's the deal. I mentioned a couple people in the first service. I mentioned, because they were in the first service, Jim Matthias and Bobby Johansson. Neither one of them need to be doing more for Jesus. <laughs> They're already doing so much. In fact, my, I said it in the first service, and Bobby didn't rebuke me, so I'll say it in the second one too. Like, my encouragement to Bobby sometimes is like, slow down. Just slow down a little bit. Because she is sacrificing a lot to bring young women to Christ. Now, some of you are in that boat this morning. And you know who you are, I hope. And I'm, I'm working, man. I'm doing Awana, and I'm helping out in children's program, and I'm doing all these different things, and I need to make sure I have time with my family. That's really important. It's important for me. I said yes to um, helping oversee 100 churches in our district. I sit on a board that oversees 100 different churches. Way more work than I thought it was going to be. Preaching at a conference for three churches at the end of the month. I, I want to say yes to everything. But sometimes I'm learning. My wife just told me this. You've got to start saying no. I have to start saying no to stuff. That's, the, that's where I'm at. I have to be discerning about where I can serve and still pour into my family. Because God tells me that the first church is Allie, Peyton, Jonah, Jolie, and David. 
That's, I'm their pastor first. Okay, you get me second. Sometimes you get me first, but don't tell her that. <clears throat> some of you are in that place. Some of you, some of you are babies, and you just you need to start swimming in some a little bit rougher water. You need to start showing up early. <laughs> you need to hang out a little late. I think God has something for every one of us to be more involved in within his kingdom. Remember what I said earlier? This isn't just an age, this isn't just a physical age thing. This is true if you're 16, 15, 12. This is true if you're 20, 25, 35. It's true if you're 40. You're 60, 70, and 80. You're still here for a reason. Don't check out. Keep coming, keep showing up. Amen? Okay. Jesse, you want to come up? Let's sing. And here's the uh, same challenge I gave the first service. Hopefully, everything we do as a church, there is a reason behind it. So when we do things as a church, your leadership and your elders, we, we try our best to think through everything that we present to you, all of the options for service, Bible studies, vision, all that stuff. There's a reason why we do it. And if someone said to me, hey, why do we close in song? And we close in song because it's just too easy to hear a message, to leave, to go watch football and eat lunch and just forget. It's just too easy. It's the norm, really, I think. So we close in song, and I'm mentioning this as a reminder that this, we're to be engaged in the singing process. We close to respond to God. First of all, we respond because he's worthy of our worship and the lifting of our voices and our praise and our adoration. He saved you by grace. The other reason is so that you can ask God how you might respond to the message. Lord, what must I do? I don't want to manipulate anyone in this room to do something for God that God doesn't want you to do because I'd have to answer to that. It'd be a painful day for me to show up in heaven and God says, you know, all these people did these great things and it was because you manipulated them. I would, I would feel horrible. I actually want you to serve God because I do believe your joy is attached to it. I honestly believe that your joy is attached to serving him. And that one day you'll show up at heaven and you'll stand before God as I will and he will, sell, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful Slave. Lord, we, um, we have to trust you for a piece of this work. There's just absolutely nothing man can do to produce fruit within anyone's life. That's only a work that you can do, and so we submit to you that reality. And we say to you, Lord, would we be a living sacrifice to you? Would we, would we Lord, please be willing to step up our game and our faith to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Lord. That we would not be afraid to be doers of the word. But Lord, we would be fearful of of just being a hearer only. I trust, Lord, that you will continue to build us up as a church in your image and to use us in a mighty way. Lord, please use us in a mighty way to build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We trust you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.